here at Knox this year, we are taking uh, an opportunity this year to, to explore how God reveals himself to us. We have a God who speaks, who reveals, who's constantly inviting us into relationship by telling us who he is. And we're, we're doing it through this certain lens of conversation. We're calling this holy conversations. And we're trying to understand the Bible. And actually, you can very... Uh, legitimately understand it is this extended conversation of God and his people. God revealing himself to us and his people responding back. And a really vital part of any good conversation, as you well know, are questions. Questions launch some fabulous conversations, don't they? They help you go places you might not have gone without that question. And God has questions for us. Interestingly, God reveals something of himself through questions. And of course, we have questions for God, don't we? Big questions, ultimate questions. One of the questions I hear mostly from people is, is how do we make sense of this world, this life? You don't have to go long through life to know that things aren't supposed the way they're supposed to be, are they? Life often feels like a bittersweet symphony. It's uh, it's a perplexing, paradoxical mixture of both the beautiful and the broken and, and the wonderful goodness and then unspeakable evil. And everyone knows this. There's this shadow of tragedy over everyone's life. But why? Why? Why is life this way? Why does it have to be this way? Why, are, why is everyone so unhappy? Why, why is there so much hatred? Why is there sickness and death? Why are we scared of so much of that? And unless you have some operating, working theory for why that is, why life often is filled with so much misery, you're in a lot of trouble, I got to tell you. A lot of us here are in trouble because we don't have a working theory for why that is. And that's why people constantly get shocked or, or surprised or, or really just filled with confusion when disappointments hit their life or when tragedy strikes because you just don't have a way to understand, to work all these things in, the, these realities that there are miseries in life. But there's got to be one. And the text we're going to read today offers us a profound reading of reality. And, and it helps us understand why life is the way it is and why we're not meant for this and shows us where our hope lies. And so I encourage you to turn. It's Genesis chapter 3. It's a classic story in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, it's first book of the Bible, third chapter, page 3. So remember, God has created the heavens, the earth. He's created humanity. He's placed Adam and Eve in this perfect environment. Absolute perfection. And then we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You'll surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And when a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the, feet of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Typical guy, right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is God's word for us. So in the garden, we have a picture of this perfect life that God created. God gave us the complete perfect conditions for living in which humanity enjoyed this unbroken communion and conversation with God. It was the experience of, of being completely known by God and loved. Now we know that isn't the experience we have in regular daily life because something has disrupted all this. What? Adam and Eve, we read, rejected God and rebelled against him. And we read that Adam and Eve responded to the temptation and they ate the fruit that God commanded them not to. And so instead of centering their lives on God, giving themselves fully to God as God fully gave himself to them, they instead chose to focus on themselves. They centered their life on themselves, which is what the Bible calls sin. And that lead into the rebellion. The lead into that rebellion was a lie, a deception. In the story we read how the, 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 the very first thing Adam and Eve did, the very first mark of sin, the first step in this fall was, was to believe a deception. And the big lie that the serpent tempted them with was, you can't trust God. 
This is the big lie that all of us buy into. It is the root of all our problems. Intellectual problems, emotional problems, moral problems. Is that we believe this lie that we can't trust God. It's at the root of everybody in this room. It's at the root of our souls. It's sort of like a poison that, that eats away at us. The lie is that we can't trust God because we believe actually that we're probably more compassionate and more understanding and we're wiser than God. I mean, think about it. Think about your intellectual problems. Many people have intellectual struggles. And you say, well, you know, I could believe in God if I could account for why the world is such a mess. And what we're doing is we're placing God in the dock. And we're on the judge's seat. And we're making the verdict. And we're saying, God, you prove your case. You show. We think we're wiser. We have greater understanding. And so, God, it's up to you. Prove your case. And if you do, I'll be happy to believe in you. We don't trust God. Think about many of our emotional problems that we wrestle with. Why are many of us anxious today? I mean, really anxious. Even though we say, yes, I believe in God. Why are we still anxious about so many things? It's because at the root of our soul, we think we know better than God. We think we know how our life should go. You're going to come through for us. And so we don't trust him because this deception has passed into us. Look at how this happens here in the text. The serpent comes along, really crafty. Did God really say? He plants the seeds of doubt and suspicion about God's goodness. God's not really for you, the, say, uh, the, the serpent tempts. He, in fact, is holding out on you. In verse 5, it says, God knows that you'll be like him. God knows that the thing he's forbidding is really good for you, actually. He's holding out on you. God knows that you're going to reach your fuller potential if you can just get out from under his hands. God knows, and so he want, doesn't want that for you. That's the deception. You can't trust him. And that is passed into every one of us. No matter who you are in this room, whether you're a Christian, whether you're skeptical of Christianity, whether you don't even know where you stand in terms of faith matters, it is in all of us. That's the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve in this text. That's the essence of, again, what the Bible talks about as sin, this, this deception, this, this mistrust of God, which leads to this rebellion, to bumping God out of the center and placing ourselves at the center. And we do this all the time. This story is a universal story. The reason there's so much misery in the world is because we have repeatedly placed ourselves, our interests, other things at the center of life rather than God. We take these things, which some of which are good, but we place them in the center and we try to have them deliver the freight of ultimate meaning and purpose for our lives. And we look to them to provide our lives with identity and, and significance. For instance, some of us do that with our work, with our career. We hope that in our work, our career, this will deliver our lives identity. And we fully identify with our work and our careers. And, and it leads us to do all sorts of silly things like work crazy hours. And we neglect our families and our relationships. And we alienate people because... Work can't be the center of our lives. 
Or some of us take families or relationships and we center our lives on them and we hope they will deliver our identity and meaning and we look to them to fulfill some deepest needs. Um, and we believe if we just find the right person, you know, then I'll be complete. Then I'll be fulfilled. But here's the deal. People always disappoint us. <laughs> People always let us down. No person can carry the weight of that sort of expectation. Or we think, if my kids turn out right, if they're well-adjusted and well-behaved, you know, I get a deep sense of approval and identity in that. But if you place that burden on your kids, you'll crush them. They'll end up hating you for it. This, this is at the root of so many of the miseries of our world where we mistrust God, bump him out of the center, place something else in the center. We don't believe God is good. And in place of God, we look for other things. But these other things just can't deliver our ultimate hopes. And so when we do that, everything unravels. The center doesn't hold anymore. Which is what we see here in the text in verse 7. Because of their rebellion, everything looks different. In, in verse 7, then the eyes of them were opened and they saw they were naked. Something shifts. Something is adjusted. Now what changed? They were naked before. Did they just not realize they were naked? Of course not. No, they were new. They, they had no clothes. Um, and there was no problem with that nakedness. They were naked and unashamed, it says earlier in Genesis. Beautiful picture. Of, of how life is meant to be. And maybe you've experienced moments like that. Not a physical nakedness, but a, a vulnerability where you have opened up to someone. And maybe you've told someone something about yourself. Some deep secret, some weakness, some vulnerable place in your life. And that person has admired you for that vulnerability. And they've just said, um, you, you've experienced in return a love for yourself. Even in that moment of vulnerability and weakness. That kind of experience we, we thrive on, we cherish, because we were built to know that, built to be known in our full selves and loved at that same place. That is so much what we want, isn't it? Someone to look into our lives, to see us fully, to know us fully, and then to say, I love what I see. That is what it means to be naked and unashamed. We die for that, because it's what we're meant for. To be naked and unashamed. To be known and fully loved. But now that nakedness, that being fully known is a vulnerable thing. It's a painful thing. And so all of a sudden they know they're threatened by that. There's a sense of being unacceptable now in Adam and Eve. And so what do they do? What do this pair do? They cover up. And they hide. They hide from God. Now, those of us on a spiritual journey, which I take all of us here, we're here for a reason. Those of us who profess a faith, whether you're spiritual but not religious, we all like to think of ourselves as searchers, seekers. You know, we ask questions, we study, we read books, we go to seminars, we pray, we're searching for God. And the Bible has a beautiful promise that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We like to think of ourselves as seekers. Genesis has another word for us, sort of an inverse reality. We're actually not seekers. We're hiders. That is the truth. Hiding is our instinctive response to our awareness that we've sinned. 
We are made for these open, transparent relationships with God and others. We're made to be part of this honest conversation with God and others. This, remember, of course, is the conversation at the center of the universe where God lives in this open, free offering of himself in love to others, to us. And this is something we're made to know and enjoy where there's no hiding, no shame, naked and unashamed, no reason to hide but sin. This fall, all that is lost. And so instead of this open relationship, Adam and Eve run for cover when they hear God in the garden. Don't we know this? I mean, I think this is my story. I'm a master hider because I'm afraid about the truth of who I am will become known. That if you truly know me, you certainly won't love me that I'll be exposed or rejected. And so I hide from God. I hide from the truth about myself. I hide from others. I present a really nice photoshopped edition of the truths, Phil. That's what we all do. We're creative, however, in how we hide too, aren't we? Some of us like to hide behind questions. We pose intellectual challenges to God. Now, questions are good. You know, we are a church that emphasizes, yes, ask good questions. You don't check your brain at the door. Faith requires the best of our thinking. But sometimes questions can be a way of hiding from God. Or even religion. How about that? One of the more subtler ways of hiding from God is religion. We can sing hymns and do good deeds and study the Bible, but you can be far from God. You can be hiding from God. Love of the church is not the same as love of God. Now, maybe, maybe hiding is just a good strategy. Maybe we should consider that. Who wants to be exposed, right? Maybe this instinct is just spot on. Maybe Adam and Eve were doing just exactly what they should be doing. But think of this. There's something we need to know about hiding. Whatever we hide can never be known and can never be loved. Whenever we hide something, it will never be understood and known. I can only be truly loved to the extent that I am fully known. And so here is Adam and Eve. Here we are. Desperately wanting to hide. Needing to be sought out. And just really confused about what it means to be found. That's us. But look at God in this passage. Look at the beautiful God in this passage. What does he do? He seeks out Adam and Eve. Again, we're not the searchers. We're not the seekers. God is the seeker. It's almost like they're playing this game of hide and seek. And God says, okay, I'll play. I'll be the seeker. I'm it. God is the one who humbles himself to be the seeker of his scared and lost children. The whole story of the Bible is really the story of a seeking God. Of we are, are the ones who are hiding. And God is searching out his lost hiding children. It is the story of a God pursuing you and I with the deepest of love and affection. Isn't this exactly what Jesus said of himself? I have come to seek to save that was, which was lost. God is the one taking the initiative to seek us out. He is the true seeker. And look at how God seeks us out in this passage. It is just beautiful. I am melted by how gentle God is here in Genesis. Look at how God responds to human rebellion and sin. You'd think, you'd think that the response to this colossal affront 
to God would be this thundering rage. I mean, he's almighty God, right? And his creation has rebelled, has sort of snubbed him. You'd be thinking there is this massive indignation of God's part. That's often what we expect from God, isn't it? The pointed finger of condemnation. Waves of anger coming at us. But what does God do? He asks questions. To Adam and Eve, he asked four questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to? And then what have you done? Now, this is an odd thing, isn't it? Why does God ask questions? Really? Why does he ask questions? The previous chapters in this Genesis story tell us that God is the supreme being who has created all things. He is the source of every creative goodness that we see and know and all of that that we don't see and have not yet known. He is the all-powerful God. He is the wise ruler of all things, the director of events of history. He is the source of all knowledge, knowing us down to the deepest, most intimate parts of who we are. So why does that God ask questions? Is the omniscient one confused? Is that it? Does God lack some information that Adam has to supply here? Of course not. We ask questions for a number of different reasons. We often ask because we, we don't have enough information, because we're curious, because we want to expand our understanding and awareness. But questions function in other ways as well. Remember, God desires relationship. And he invites us into this communion and this conversation with him. Often we ask questions with God as part of the conversation with him. But here God speaks through questions. The thing he's asking about, he already knows about. He's not looking for more information. So why is God asking? The questions reveal something about God. Revealing God is a healer. He is a wonderful counselor. If you've ever been to a counselor, a counselor often doesn't say much. What they do is they ask very good questions. Questions that help you discover. Questions that open you up to the truth about who you are. Here is God, this wonderful counselor, coming to Adam and Eve, asking questions. Questions to which he knows the answers already. But he asks the questions because he knows this is the process that will redeem us. It will change us. If we realize and acknowledge the answers, if we discover the truth, if we admit what's going on. These questions are designed to lead Adam and Eve to a self-discovery. God comes to us, humans, hiding in our shame. And he comes to us, not blasting us with judgment, because that just drives us deeper into hiding, doesn't it? God comes instead with healing questions. God is a beautiful counselor here. This is a really good word for us as Christians to understand in terms of how we relate and respond to others. Christians have a reputation, just or unjust, for being quick to point out sin in others. So quick to judge. But to what effect? I was recently talking with a, a young Christian who said, you know what, we, we just need to start with sin when we're talking with non-Christians. We just need to point it out and tell them they are sinners. 
But did Adam and Eve need that reminder? They were acutely aware, and so they hid. That is why they hid, because they were so aware. I, I think if, if we approach people with this full frontal, you know, just naming, pointing fingers, it just drives them deeper. It drives those secrets deeper down. But here's the truth. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And instead of coming and telling Adam and Eve all the answers, and God gently leads them out of hiding, leading them to self-discovery. In fact, when you read the Bible, you see God doing this repeatedly throughout. Next chapter in Genesis, when Cain, Cain is infuriated with his brother Abel, and God comes and says, why are you so angry? He doesn't come with answers saying, let me tell you why you're so angry. No, no, why? Why are you so angry, Cain? Think of Jonah. Jonah's another infuriated one, angry at God showing mercy. And God says, should I not show mercy to that great city. If you look at the life of Jesus, his ministry, Jesus, one of the most effective tools Jesus employed was asking questions. Not giving answers, but asking questions. God comes with questions to bring healing and restoration of our relationship. These questions are intended to lead Adam and Eve to understand what they've done and so to seek God again, to come out of hiding so that they could open up their lives again. Think of the first question. Where are you? Adam doesn't really answer that question forthrightly. The response you'd expect is, I'm hiding, you know, because I sinned against you. But instead, he focuses on, on some of the symptoms. You know, I'm, I'm, I was scared. Um, so he goes to the symptoms. But, and so God wants to get a little deeper. He wants to get to the root. So he asks with another question. All right, let me be a little more specific. Adam, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to? Now take note of what God says here. God didn't say, Adam, did you break my rules? No, no, no. Have you trampled on my word? Have you rebelled against the one thing I asked of you? Spiritual healing, true healing comes when there's a, a transformation in how we see things. When, when God opens our eyes to see that our sin is not just a breaking of some moral code. It's not a transgression against some standard of ethics, but it is a personal affront to God. It is spitting in God's face. This is the heart of sin. Every, every, every single time we sin, is like a dagger in the heart of God. And again, it's not breaking some arbitrary code of ethics. It is breaking the heart of God, the creator of the world. And despite that very personal affront, God comes to us asking those original questions, hoping to call us out of dark places. Where are you? What have you done? Why do you think you're experiencing this shame? The questions remain. He keeps coming to us asking these questions. He, he never stops constantly coming to us, hoping that we might see ourselves for the truth of who we are. God's like a skillful surgeon. Um, it's hard, but it's merciful work he's doing. God is calling us out of hiding so that we might be true faith, so that we might know ourselves, and in that place, that we might know his love. There's a beautiful scene in, in the Phantom of the Opera. If you've seen it, you probably know it. 
Where the phantom, of course, you know, in the, the story, wears this mask to cover a disfigured face. And he lives undercover as well, well hidden in the bowels of this old opera house. But a woman, Christine, touches his heart. And at the climax of the story, he, he removes the mask. He comes out of hiding. And for a moment, he chooses to be known, to be seen for who he is. And he knows that his face is hideous. And he waits, he waits, anticipates for Christine to sort of scream in horror at what she sees. But she doesn't. Her heart is moved by compassion. And she doesn't turn away from him. But instead, she gently kisses his face. And that love changes him. Takes a while for that to work out. But while, for that moment where he stops hiding and allows himself to be who he is, he finds himself loved. This is the promise of the gospel. The final question God gives to Adam and Eve is such a hard one. What have you done? And to name all that we have done before God, to be that honest, all the hurt we've caused, all the opportunities we squandered, all the love we have not extended because it was too hard or inconvenient. It's a question that... that gets us to see ourselves truly for who we are, to pull the mask away, to understand our weakness, to understand our need. But in doing so, it's a question also that that gets us to look elsewhere because it gets us to look at what has been done for us. What have you done gets us to consider what God has done for us. It redirects us to see there is a way home in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we get hints of that in this text. As God explains the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion, there's a, there's a sort of an outlining of these consequences, often called the curse, the curse of sin. I don't know about you, but to me, that's one of the most helpfully explanatory pieces of life. I remember one time in my life, just struggling with work, thinking, and one moment thinking, why does this have to be so hard? And all of a sudden, this dawning realization, of course, there's a curse. <laughs> that's why. This is one of the most helpful explanatory pieces for this life we live in. But in this curse, there is this promise. Some people call this the the proto-evangelion. Sort of this this little first sign of the gospel. Where it's God says to the, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the offspring and hers. He will crush your head, meaning you're done with. And he's he's looking, he's talking of the promised Messiah, Jesus. And What did Jesus do on the cross? How did he crush that serpent's head on the cross? He opened up a way for us back home. He is doing something for us. He is giving his life for us. And we catch a glimpse of what that is in a question that Jesus asks from the cross. Remember the question he asks. Where are you, God? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing on the cross what we deserve, God forsaken us, so that we might come back home to God. Jesus left his home with God so that we might come back. He's experienced God's face turned away so that we might know God's face turned in love and blessing towards us. And the cross says, oh, the time for hiding is over. It is time to come out from hiding. It is time to come home because no longer is our sin, our shame, our nakedness just that. It is now framed in the context of safety, the safety of God's love and grace. And so we can come out of hiding. We can know ourselves truly for who we are and know we are loved. 
We can take off our masks and know we are cherished by the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for questions that call us out. So often it is us posing questions to you, God. But when we get humble, when we listen, it is you posing the questions to us. Thank you, God, for seeking us out and for posing these questions. Without a sense of your seeking love, we could never really get honest about our lives, really brutally honest. But thank you for continuously coming to us, for counseling us, for healing us. God, help us to see that there is a new and living way in Jesus, in the cross. Help us to see that it is your kindness that is constantly calling and, and leading us to repentance. And I pray, God, that everyone here in this room would just have this truth applied so deeply to our hearts by your Spirit. God, we thank you for the truth that although there is a curse... And that it extends far and wide. Your grace extends far wider and deeper and higher than any curse ever. We thank you that your grace is that large, that immense. We praise you, Jesus, for this amazing grace. In your name we pray. Amen.